My name is Bob. I have the privilege of being with a group of people that were had in mind this church before it became a reality. And I also have had the privilege of serving as an elder here for a period of time. And I get the privilege of sharing God's Word every once in a while. So this morning we're going to look at a passage about Stephen who you met last week. I've got a question for you this morning. How many of you at a, were once or are now have been a waiter or a waitress? Could you just put your hand up if you've done that? See, a lot, of, a lot of you have done that. Waiters and waitresses are special people. And last week we looked at seven men that were chosen to wait on tables, to serve tables. And you know, waiters and waitresses rely on tips. Tips are very important. Not very many places have waiters and waitresses that don't get tips. But what would it be like if you went to an establishment and instead of you giving them a tip, they gave you a tip? Well, Stephen is a waiter. He's the foremost of the waiters that are in chapter 6 at the beginning. And Stephen is not going to receive a tip from us, but he's going to give us some tips. We're going to look at those this morning. He's the most prominent of the men who serve tables in Acts 6. He is described as being full of faith and of the Holy Spirit in verse 5 and full of grace and power in verse 8. He seems to be one of those energetic kinds of people who deeply encourage us and challenge us, and sometimes their zeal can be threatening. That certainly happened with Stephen. Here there's a group of men who were intimidated by Stephen called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. They were men of Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia. This particular synagogue may have even been the one that Stephen came out of. They were Jews whose ancestors had lived outside of Israel, but they, their descendants, had returned to Israel. They, these Jews were Hellenists or Greek-speaking, just like those widows earlier in chapter 6. Probably all seven of those men that were chosen, if you look at them, they don't have Jewish names, they have Hellenistic names. They probably were Hellenists as well. The freedmen were called freedmen because they were descendants of Jewish slaves who had been given their freedom. These men ganged up against Stephen to argue against him, but that was unfruitful. So what did they do? They got together a band of lies and they lied about him to discredit him. And they brought him in front of the Jewish council, also called the Sanhedrin. Stephen had been sharing the message of Jesus persuasively and powerfully. What did they do when, when he spoke so full of faith in the Holy Spirit? They got him in front of this council. And what does Stephen do? If you would read through this whole passage, which we're not going to, it's like 61 verses. Stephen never defends himself. He defends the truth. You see, Stephen is not only full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He's not only full of 
grace and power, Stephen is full of the word. This man knew the word of God. He was a man of the book. If you stuck Stephen, he bled Bible. He knew the word. He knew not only the information of the scriptures, but the transformation that the scriptures can bring to a life. He knew not only the dictation of scripture, but its application and its implication for people. And this man, who is not in full-time ministry, Stephen, a man serving in his local body of believers, is ready, willing, and able to take the most learned men in all of Israel, the Sanhedrin, through the scriptures to challenge them to accept that Jesus of Nazareth was no ordinary man, but that he was the fulfillment of all the prophecies and promises that God had given them in the Old Testament. The first four men Stephen references are the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. They are Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David. These four men point the way to the fifth most important man, to Jesus of Nazareth. The religious elite that are challenging Stephen would say that they are students of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David. But Stephen is challenging that knowledge. They know the facts, but do they know the meaning of the facts that these Old Testament heroes of the faith are proclaiming. As we examine each of their lives, Stephen focuses on some key elements that incur in each of their lives as we look at them. They are tips of what we're to look for when you want to see if God is working. As Stephen the waiter goes through the Bible tour, highlighting the lives and ministries of these five key leaders in Scripture, he gives us three tips of what we should notice in each of their stories. These religious leaders have rejected Jesus because they are so caught in their preconceived notions about who God is and how he works that they not only totally miss the Son of God who stood before them, but they put all their powers to work to eliminate him and have him put to death. These are some hard-headed and stony-hearted men. Their intent is prior to their content. What do I mean by that? Their intentions dictate what they will understand. They've already decided that God is going to act in a certain way. They have these preconceived notions. Their previous knowledge keeps them from present and future understanding. Here are three step tips that Stephen believes will help them and us as we consider them to understand how God is at work. I'm going to show you these three tips in action in one of the stories so that you can see what I mean. But these three elements are, pl- are in all of these stories. There are 61 verses in the passage we're considering today, but unfortunately we don't have the time to go deeply into all of them. So we'll look at one of the first four. 
to keep in mind the three tips I want to share with you. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 7, verses 9 through 16. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, this is Stephen talking to the Sanhedrin, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and in Shechem. Now keep in mind, when Stephen is telling this story of 61 verses, he doesn't have a Bible. Like I am, like I do. He's telling them from his heart. He knows the scriptures. This little section I just read covers Genesis 37 to 50. It's, it's, it's 14 chapters, and he summarizes them in eight verses. He wants to cut to the chase. He wants to give us what I'll call the eye of the hunter. I'm not a hunter, but I've heard if you have the eye of the hunter, you have to know what to look for if you're going to find that animal in the wild. I've heard with a deer, you look for a straight line, the straight line of their back. Not at the horizon, that's the only other straight line out there in nature. When you're looking for a deer, if it's a snowy day like today, and you're looking for a snowshoe bunny, you have to look for a black round circle, a black button, the eye of the bunny, white in the snow. What are we going to look for here? Three tips. Number one, with the eye of the hunter, God invents unpredictable plans. God loves to tell stories. Every one of your lives is a story that God is telling. He invents unpredictable plans. He uses a young man who's trafficked as a slave, that's Joseph, He's trafficked by his own brothers in order to save those brothers and their families from starvation. Because they are the family from which God's ultimate answer for all people, for all nations, will come hundreds of years later. God invades unsuspected places. He sends this young man to a land that worships many different gods, and they also worship their own ruler, Pharaoh. It's the land of Egypt. They have no respect for the one God of a wandering desert family. God invites unlikely people. When we first meet Joseph, he's a tattletale, spoiled young man, the favorite of his father, He is sent as a lowly slave from this desert tribe to lead the superpower country of its day. Unpredictable plan, 
unsuspected place, unlikely people. As we look at the stories of these four leaders of the Jewish faith, we see that God continues to reveal a story with similar elements. First, in Abraham's life, God's unpredictable plan is to raise up a nation and bless all the other nations in unsuspected places that we see in these flags represented here, outside the land of Israel and through two unlikely people who have never been able to have a child. Abraham is 100, his wife is 90. And all of a sudden, by God's own work, she's pregnant. Now, we don't have anybody that age at our church, but if there was a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman who was a, who'd never been able to have a child and all of a sudden she was pregnant, you would laugh. And that's what they named their son, Laughter. Everyone laughed. The laugh of faith. Because of the unpredictable things that God wants to do. Second, we already looked at Joseph. That's where, jo- that's where Stephen goes to. Third, he goes to Moses. God's unpredictable plan is for a beautiful Hebrew baby boy sentenced to die to instead be adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh and to be raised as Egyptian royalty. At the age of 40 as a prince of Egypt, he acts to defend a Jewish person and kills an Egyptian. The Egyptians find out and Moses escapes. He flees to an unsuspected place called Midian where he becomes a shepherd for 40 years. He's first described as a man powerful in speech, but for 40 years, the only, only people, or not even people, The only ones that will listen to him are a bunch of sheep. So for 40 years, he never speaks in an eloquent manner. He forgets how. And God speaks to him one day through a burning bush and calls him to go back to free his people. And after God's people are rescued out of Egypt, God uses this unlikely person, Moses, to get Egypt out of Israel. God directs them through Moses to construct the tabernacle as a place to experience fellowship with God and worship him. And eventually, many generations later, through David and his son Solomon, the movable tent or tabernacle that they build is given a place in Israel as a temple. Remember God's unpredictable plan of conquering a Philistine giant named Goliath through a young man named David? Surely an unlikely person. He was the eighth son, the last of eight, eight sons, and in a battle with a sling and a stone, he kills the greatest warrior of his day in an unlikely place, a field where thousands of men you were God brought glory to himself through this man named David. David eventually becomes king of Israel and desires to build a house for the Lord. The Lord says that David's son Solomon will build it. David amasses all the resources to build this house, but Solomon is the one that leads the building of the house. Later on, the prophet Isaiah reminds us, though, that the Lord God is too grand and glorious to dwell in a human-built dwelling we call the temple. 
God has unpredictable plans through unlikely people in unsuspected places to accomplish his unquestionable purposes. And it is all for his unceasing praise. You see, we could be mistaken and think here that Stephen is the one that is on trial. But Stephen turns the tables and he speaks here at the close of his speech to the synagogue of the freemen as his accusers and to the Sanhedrin as his judges. For it is they who are the accused, for they have sentenced and crucified Jesus. Let me read Acts 7, 51 through 53. He says, you stiff-necked people. Back in the day, that day, when they had to use oxen to plow, do their farm work, they'd have to teach a young ox how to be a plow ox. They'd put them in a yoke with an older ox. But initially, that young ox was stiff-necked. It just didn't want to go where the master wanted the plow to go. It just bowed its neck and didn't want to go along. And that's what Stephen is saying to these leaders of Israel. You are stiff-necked. The master wants to take you somewhere, but it's outside of your preconceived notions and you're not willing to go there. You're stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Every one of those other four men was resisted when they tried to step out for God. Abraham, Joseph, David, and Moses. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You see, an unlikely person, Jesus of Nazareth, the righteous one, the perfect one, who never sinned, never thought a sin, never spoke a sin, never did a sin. The righteous one was God's unpredictable plan to become one of us. And in an unsuspecting place, a place of crucifixion, a place where murderers were crucified for their crimes. An unsuspecting place, the cross of judgment. He freed us from all of our sin, its penalty and its power. He was unlikely because he was sinless and did not deserve the judgment that you and I deserve. And by the unpredictable reality of grace, grace means I get what I don't deserve. He took what you and I deserve, and we got what he deserves. To be right with God. To be seen as righteous as Jesus is righteous. That's the gospel. That's the unpredictable plan that changes unlikely persons like you and me. 
the gospel. You see, Stephen was challenging these men. It reminds me of a story I heard of, a, of an actor who's a Shakespearean actor. He would do these great Shakespearean plays, but he was always the star because at the end, he was so eloquent, the crowd would clap and clap and clap and yell, encore, encore, encore. So he would come from behind the curtain and he would, he would recite the 23rd Psalm and the people would clap and clap and clap. Well, this particular guy had had too much applause in his life. He was a bit full of himself. So after he gave the 23rd Psalm, he would issue a challenge. He said, can anyone else recite the 23rd Psalm? And no one ever did. Who could do it as magnificently as he, is, he had done it? But one night, a little old man raised his hand and said, I will. So the little, man, little old man came up to the stage and he recited the 23rd Psalm. And the people didn't clap. They wept. And the actor said, I don't understand. I do it, and they clap. You do it, and they weep. What's the difference? The little old man said, here's the difference. You know the psalm. I know the shepherd. Do you know the shepherd? These men, the rulers of Israel, knew the psalm, but they didn't know the shepherd. I don't know what background you come from. You come from a church background and you know a lot of stuff. That isn't going to count. You need the righteousness of the righteous one. Put your faith and trust in him. And those of you that have, today you need the righteousness of the righteous one. So do I. I remember almost seven years ago now, meeting here with a pastor of this church, a good man named Kevin Pringle. Had a church here called the 180 Church. He was surrendering this church building to a small group of people who believed that God was calling them to establish a new church here in Lincoln. We met with Kevin and we talked about what God could do. There were just a few chairs up here in the front. And we got in an open space down there and got on our faces on the floor and we prayed and said, ask God to work. We're, for me, I was in an unsuspected place, all of us were. We'd never even been in this church before. And with us, unlikely people, God began to work his unpredictable plan. God has been accomplishing his unquestionable purposes for his unceasing praise. I believe that God is continuing to work in unsuspected places in our city in your workplace, your school, your playground, your neighborhood, and in your family. He is going to use unlikely people, you and me, to work his unsuspected plan. Do you think you're unqualified? 
You are. That's who God uses. For us, we've discovered that God wants to turn a former car, car dealership called Deteau Chevrolet, which was turned into a medical office building, to become an unsuspected place of worship and growth, where he rescues unlikely people from their sin and uses us, unlikely as we are, to serve those who don't know him yet and those who do. But God is not going to be confined to that place either. He wants to send us out in small groups that we call city groups to love each other, to care for each other, and to pull other people in to this place where God will do his incredible work. We've got to trust him for that, for his unsuspected plan to reach the nations. 